Thank you, Nell. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 4. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, if you pass that to the center aisle, we'd like to collect those and pledge to pray for you this week. What a joy to be a part of those baptisms this morning. Baptism is a public uh, declaration of one's faith in Jesus Christ. It's a picture of what Christ has done for us in his redeeming love, where we're buried with him in baptism and raised with him uh, to walk in newness of life. And it's also an, a matter of obedience. Jesus commanded everyone who, who believes in him in a saving, trusting relationship to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. And I'm so thankful for the testimony of Will Oliver. He's been a friend of this church for many years, a beloved brother in Christ. We're so grateful to have you, uh, Will. And for the Martinez family, what a beautiful testimony from the baptistry of their saving faith in Christ. I imagine many of you, or perhaps all of us, are burdened with the issues going on in Ukraine. It is a frightening um, development. And I thought we could just pause and pray for that need right now. Lord, we know that you are the God over all the nations. And the nations rage, Psalm 2 tells us. And we pray, Lord, for the circumstances, the situation in Ukraine right now. We pray that by your mercy, lives would be spared. We pray for the church in Ukraine which has a strong witness in many regards. I thank you for the pictures online uh, that have brought encouragement to us of believers standing in subway stations and other places declaring their praise to you. We pray that the church would be preserved and empowered and that the gospel would spread. We pray, Lord, for the efforts of the Ukrainians to resist. We ask, Lord, that the world would rally to their aid. We pray, Lord, that the Russians would be repelled. We pray that Vladimir Putin would be overthrown and realize, as Nebuchadnezzar did through his humiliation, that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives to it whom he will. We pray that through this crisis that a spiritual awakening would occur in our country, that we would be a nation, Lord, that is in tune with you, and we're far from that. We pray, Lord, for your church in these United States of America, that, Lord, you would empower us and we would walk the walk and we would point others to you. We pray that hearts would be melted, that there would be open invitations to your word. We pray that in this crisis there would be a turning to you because beside you there is no other. You're our God and there is salvation in no other name given among heaven upon which we must be saved. So lead us now as we look at living by faith in times like these. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans 4. We come to the end of this uh, important chapter. And before we dig into Abraham and look at living a life of faith, there's a scene that came to my mind from the Old Testament. It was from the life of an Old Testament king, and it gives really, it gives insight into the heart of God. This hopeful message found in 2 Chronicles 16 really emerges from a passage where God is rebuking a, a wavering king. King Asa was his name, and he was one of the 
eight kings that reigned in Judah who could be called a good king. At least he started well, but he ended poorly. And in 2 Chronicles 16, where God is rebuking him, he reminds everyone, even those reading centuries later, that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. What a nugget in a forgotten place. In 2 Chronicles 16, King Asa buckled under the pressure of a crisis by forming foreign alliances. In other words, he was under military threat, and so he entered into alliances with other countries who didn't walk with God. This was a dishonor to the Lord and disobedient. So, instead of calling upon the name of the Lord, instead of saying, God, we're in a pickle, would you please show us the way? He began to engage unbelieving nations and idolatrous nations to be their support. Which really brings the question to us when we look at living our life by faith. Um, Who do we trust with the issues of life? Who do we trust when we have challenges, maybe even enemies on the border of our life? Where do we go? One of the biggest mistakes in Israel's checkered history of disobedience or of obedience was the tendency to form alliances with other countries. And we can do that in the same way, not with other countries, but with other sources of power. One example of this was found in Isaiah 29. Israel had formed an allegiance with Egypt as a defense against Assyria. And this was an affront to God. It was, by the way, anything that's not done in faith, the Bible says is what? Sin. Anything that's not done in faith is sin, Romans 14 tells us. So this was an affront to God, it grieved the Lord. And so the psalmist would say, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In Proverbs, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs into it. What about you? You got anything sitting on the border of your life this morning? And our gathering here today is really one big reminder who you're going to trust. Who are you going to call out to? Who are you going to rest in? And maybe this challenge, maybe this enemy, maybe this threat is crouching on the doorstep of your heart, watching and waiting and wondering. Maybe it's a rocky marriage, a loveless marriage. Maybe it's depleted funds. Maybe it's mounting medical bills or health problems. Or maybe it's temptation into an immoral relationship. When you're all alone, where do you go? When you're all alone, do you get alone with the Word of God and call out to Him? Or do you find relief on a computer screen in forbidden places? Supposed wisdom without God will fall apart. Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Our ability to hold it together apart from God's wisdom and grace and favor is destined to fail. We've been talking in these messages about what it means to live by faith. 
It begins with a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, but then we don't move on to do whatever we want to do. We, we're called to follow in His footsteps. Our, our life is not our own. We've been bought with a price. What does that look like to live by faith? And we've been following the lead of the Apostle Paul, who in presenting the gospel of God in the book of Romans, holds before us the father of the faithful Abraham. Seven times Abraham is mentioned by name in this chapter, beginning from the first to the last of the verses. So in Romans 4, Paul is showing us that to be justified by faith is the way God has always saved people. And when you look at Abraham, he's, he's not a figure from the New Testament. He's not a, a figure from the, uh, the prophets. You have to go all the way back to Genesis, coming out of the, uh, the, the days of Noah and the, the crisis of the division of nations. God called Abraham to be a nation. Abraham was not in the Ur of the Chaldees in a pagan land an idolatrous people. He was not over there kingdom plotting on how he could build a great nation. God spoke to him, called him to leave his, his family and everything that was familiar to him and to go to the place that God would show him. You think that took faith? When you think of the prospect of leaving everything that's familiar to you, And he walked with God, not perfectly, but he walked with God. This walk of faith was a journey of God's revelation, periods of going, not knowing, years of waiting. In order to be a great nation, you need a son. His wife was barren. They waited for decades for God to meet that need. He had moments of unbelievable joy and triumph. And he, he dealt with anguish over moments where he was fully aware of his own sin nature and times of surrender when it just didn't make sense to follow God. Our faith, we have said, is not a blind leap in the dark. When we call you to faith in Jesus Christ, it's not a, it's not a leap into the dark into something that hasn't been spoken. We're directed to the gospel. We're called to believe the gospel. To trust Jesus Christ alone. The chapter of faith, Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. And that could, be, that could develop a gap in our mind. How do you respond when you find yourself falling into a reality gap? Old Testament scholar Ian Dugid wrote, Living in the gap between promise and reality. The gospel according to Abraham. When I read that title, I thought, that's interesting. I want, I want to pay attention to what he's saying here. So how do you respond when you find yourself falling into the reality gap? It, namely, that God has given promises and my reality seems so far removed from his promises. That's Abraham. And that's us. If we're not informed by God's word. By the way, how, how does your faith and my faith increase? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. So if I'm wanting to grow in my faith, I'm wanting to be around things that are going to remind me of God's promises and to follow in the path that Abraham followed. 
It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. A dear friend I received word this morning died. A believing brother. And so, when I think about what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, what does that mean for him? What does that mean for his family? Well, to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. That because our Savior has risen from the dead, He's the resurrection and the life. That whoever believes in Him shall live even though He dies. We have a living faith. Dugan also says, how do you feel when there seems to be a huge difference between what God has promised and what you see now? What do you do when the vision you once had of the way your life was supposed to work out seems to be crumbling into dust? It's easy to be a Christian in the sunshine of Palm Sunday, surrounded by the crowds chanting praises to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's much harder to be a disciple when puzzled over the death of Jesus and not seeing how his death will lead to resurrection. The dark clouds of this world can threaten to overcome us with despair and tempt us to find hope in other things. The song from the Les Miserables comes to my mind. I dreamed a dream. It really is the song of every sinner. But the tigers come at night with their voices soft as thunder and they tear your hope apart and they turn your dream to shame. That's been sung since the Garden of Eden. And into that despair, God sent His Son with gospel hope. To the gloom and despair, God has shown a great light and has sent His Son into the world. And what are we to do with the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the centerpiece of our faith? We're to We're to do what Matthew 17 says when Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration, heaven opened up and spoke and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So as we return to Romans 4, Paul provides some skin in the person of Abraham to help us understand the abstract nature of talking about justification by faith and what it means to live by faith. I don't know what kind of doubts and fears and struggles you're facing in your life. I know they're here. I know I have them. So I'm wanting God to close uh, my thinking a bit and give me greater confidence in His promises, whatever may come. Even with the glowing legacy of Abraham, he was clearly human and imperfect. He, He had weaknesses, fears, Bad habits, he lied on two occasions concerning Sarah when under pressure, and yet the Bible describes Abraham despite all the flaws as a man of faith, a man persevering in his trust of God. To believe and rest in the promises of God brings God pleasure, by the way. It's impossible to please God without faith. And anything not done in faith is sin, the Bible says. To believe and rest in the promises of God brings him pleasure. You want to bring pleasure to God in your life? Trust him. Believe on him. Walk in his ways. 
Put yourself in positions in your life where you can hear his word and become a follower of him. So to the text we go, Romans 4, 19 through 25. And I want to focus on these last seven verses this morning. And I have a two-point sermon. So you're thinking, great, we're going to get out a little early, not so fast. I told the guys this morning in prayer, it could be a couple hours, but we're not going to do that. Two points with lots of things to say. One, I want to hold up for us the dangers. First, the dangers for those who would live by faith. Because there are many of them. And part of coming together in corporate worship is doing, doing battle with our own heart, our own desires, our own temptations and struggles. Who are we going to follow? Who are we going to listen to? So dangers for those who would live by faith. And then I want to close with encouragement for those who would live by faith. And we will look at Abraham specifically. So what are the dangers of those who would live by faith? The first would be a deceitfulness, the deceitfulness of sin in an unbelieving heart. We live in a world that is in rebellion to God, and you don't have to look far to find voices that will speak into your life that will get you to question God's word, the truthfulness of the gospel. The deceitfulness of sin in an unbelieving heart. And that's really can be seen in several symptoms. One is the spirit of ingratitude. Do not minimize how serious a sin, the, the sin of ingratitude is. It separates us from God. We're called to give thanks for all things that we enjoy. All things that he's given. To take steps back and do an inventory of thanksgiving. Of what God has done for us. To be ungrateful is to separate us from God. In the long term, it becomes a lifestyle that sends us to the wilderness, if you follow Israel of old. Complaining amplifies frustration, spreads discontent and discord, and can invoke an invitation for the destroyer to come and ruin your life. You suck on the sour pickle of ingratitude for very long, And it will lead you to the dumpster. It's a serious sin. And gratitude is one of the ugly symptoms of a heart in rebellion to God. One one major spin out Israel had was they tested God's faithful care and provision. And panic gripped the people over the shortage of water in Exodus 17. And instead of trusting God, the God they had just seen part the Red Sea, they began to grumble in their tents. You hear them? (laughs) When I read in Psalm 106 that they grumbled in their tents, you just hear it. And in that passage... The text says that they put the Lord to the test and quarreled with him and became, in those places became new names on the map. Massah, which means Hebrew for test, and Meribah, which means grumbling, they tested God with grumbling. It was the DNA of their spiritual life. It also leads to love of other things, your job, your toys. Toys get more expensive the older you get. Your toys, 
your entertainment needs. I remember years ago when credit card companies used to call the landlines. They'd call every evening about dinner time. Boy, they're the greatest friends that you could ever want. I remember reading a Reader's Digest about this line to a telemarketer. Could you give me your home phone number and let me call you tonight at dinner? And so I remember one giving his pitch, hey, we've got the perfect card for you for all your entertainment needs. Entertainment needs? (laughs) I didn't know I had entertainment needs. A love for other things, misplaced priorities, giving your heart and soul and energy to other things, and God gets the scraps of your life. And then the worst, falling away. It's a, it's a word commonly used, the word apostasy is used. Apostasy, to fall away. Paul mentions a, faith, a once faithful partner in ministry three times in his letters. His name is Demas. Two times are favorable. Colossians, Demas is mentioned with, with Luke, the physician, as one giving greeting to the church. In Philemon, verse 24, Paul says that Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers, they they greet you in the Lord. But in the last chapter, Paul wrote in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 4.10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And he's gone to Thessalonica. What in the world he was doing in Thessalonica, I don't know. But he fell away. You know anybody who's fallen away? Of course you do. Because all of us have dealt with this this question in our mind. He was once vibrant in the Lord. He sung in the choir. He served in the church. He went on mission trips. He was in church leadership. And now... He doesn't want to have anything to do with the things of God. We've seen a major falling away this past 18 months in the Christian world. Once vibrant, seeming to be titans for the faith, have harbored sin and shame. And some have just walked away altogether. And then we're using a new word now. We're deconstructing. Hey, the old word is this, apostasy. That's, that's what it is. Deconstructing. And often they're throwing rocks at the church and the things that are meaningful and, and building the faith of God, namely discipline to a, 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 a church body, discipline to the word, a surrender to the word, living the Christian life and seeking to be a witness for Christ. Those are mocked. By the apostate, Demas, he loved this, this present world. It also leads to a distrust of God's character and promises. Do you remember the first temptation of the Garden of Eden? Has God said? I, that was the first time in recorded history God's authority had ever been challenged. Has God really said Eve? Which led to question God's goodness and pride enters in. And you begin to harbor things like this in your mind. You know, you know how God is. 
He's always trying to ruin your fun. He's always trying to limit your life. And you begin to think that way about God. I would remind us of what we've sung this morning. Just the the greatness of God. How great thou art. Do you really believe that? I could just see the temptations fleeing when we hold on to that message. God's ways will always seem insane to this world. Will always seem boring. You know what I say to young pastors beginning in a church that's problematic? Just start preaching the Bible. Open the Bible and just start teaching the Bible. And establish that as the authority of the church. Because carnal people get bored with the Bible in a hurry. They don't want to hear it. And often the temptation is for young pastors to go into the church and start tinkering with externals in the church that seem out of order to him. And next thing you know, he's got, he's got an avalanche of opposition and maybe missing the most strategic flag to be planted in the Iwo Jima of a church life, and that would be the Word of God as authority, and that God can be trusted, His character is impeccable, and His promises are true. Something else that comes to my mind, see if you're tracking it on the insert, trusting in your own resources. When you're not trusting God, what are you doing? I can work it out here, and we go online and check this out, and look at all these contingencies, and there's things that need to be searched out, but what are we really trusting in? Are we trusting in our own resources, how clever we might be? That's a tremendous deception. I would just remind us of the simple wisdom statement in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will do what? He'll direct your path. You facing what seems to be an impossibility, follow the faithful through the ages and call on the name of the Lord and ask God to show you a way. And yes, I'm open to any criticism for such a simplistic response to the complexities of life. I'll take that criticism because it's true and it's found all the way through the Bible. We want to trust everything and everybody but God. And then... Next, living for our own selfish pursuits. Looking at the life of Abraham, you remember, his lot, you remember his nephew Lot and how they prospered in this new land that God led them to. Lot had accompanied Abraham. And um, they had become so large that they needed to make a decision. So Lot and his crew, he had first pick of the land and went into the valley of the Jordan. And Lot is a carnal man. But the Bible refers to him as righteous lot in 2 Peter 2.7. And no one's called righteous in the Bible that is not a, is not a believer. So right, lot is not somebody you hold up. Nobody want, no believer should ever want to be like lot. I mean, he's really razor thin on where, where he is with God and with everything else. And if you look at lot in the book of Genesis, and it's in the narrative uh, that contains Abraham's story. That he eventually migrates down to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's, he's established in the city of, of, of Sodom. And by these compromises, it cost him his testimony. 
In fact, that he had worked his way up to become one of Sodom's leading citizens. He sat in the gate of Sodom, which indicates that he was no longer a threat to their immoral life. Lot's prophetic voice of calling people to repentance is, is muted. Just picture a remote control and just hitting mute. You know, Sodom said to Lot, you, we mute you. You have no witness here. You're so compromised. Lot not only did not witness to his friends in Sodom, but even his own family had not been taught the ways of the Lord. Please notice, you do not get honored in a Sodom culture unless you've decided to be quiet about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You simply blend into the background and hope somebody's going to see the goodness in your life that never mentions Jesus Christ, that's a, that's a deception. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, he said that in the first century, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So the message is unmistakable. If we're so well thought of by the world that we compromise our testimony, we have paid too much for our success. So it cost him his testimony. It cost him his family. Do you remember Jesus saying as a warning, remember Lot's wife? What happened to her? Well, she loved Sodom. She loved it there. And as the angel of God is pulling them out from impending judgment, she looks back with a wistful eye. And the scripture says she became a pillar of salt. As a testimony of what? You don't do well if you love the world. It cost him his family. It cost him his character. You know the final scene in Lot's life? He's drunk committing incest with his daughters. The dangers are real. (laughs) Friends, the dangers are real. Fight them with the word of God in prayer. Commit this day to live an obedient life by faith in Jesus Christ. Be where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing until he comes. Guard your heart. Take care, brothers, the writer of Hebrews says. Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Point two, encouragement for those who who are seeking to live by faith. Notice, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his circumstances. That's what verse 19 tells us. That's where we're locked on right now, verse 19. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered his own body, when he considers his circumstances. What? Well, they're 25 years into this God call about being a great nation and don't have a son. And he's 100 years old, and his wife has been barren all these years. What hope would you think that, that, would, that she would ever conceive? Not in a human way. If we go back to verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Where is that promise? The whole chain of promises about his son, his descendants being like the stars of the heaven, 
the Messiah and the blessing to the world through him. Paul uses these key words of the gospel, faith, promise, grace, all of them to describe Abraham. Now, back at verse 19, Abraham did not weaken in his faith. That's an interesting word. It means to be without strength. It means to be powerless. So Abraham's growing older and older, but he's not growing weaker and weaker with regard to his conviction and resolve that God is a God who keeps his promises. Oh, may that be our life goal, that the older we get, we're praising him more and more and believing him more and more, not less and less. That in our old age, we're walking by faith in him. Not petering out for senior activities. But serving God as long as we have breath in our lungs. Paul uses it figuratively here. This weakened weaken in faith, faint-hearted, timid. It means to doubt, to hesitate, to be double-minded. We're warned in Scripture, don't be double-minded. You're unstable in all of your ways. Abraham did not allow the reality of his old body and Sarah's barren womb to carry the meaning of his life. His hope was in God, and he didn't buckle. Look at verse 20. Unbelief didn't suffocate the promises of God in his life. No unbelief made him waver. I think I mentioned the King James last week. He staggered not. And this isn't an expose on how great Abraham is. He's held up as an example, as a flawed sinner just like us. But in the obedience of faith followed God. He was not double-minded. He was not divided in his mind by unbelief. He was fully convinced. He was settled fully. And it says here in the text, God is able. That God is able. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able. We have a devotional book that has meant a lot to our family called Daily Light. And on March 8th of Daily Light is a simple, and, and the devotions are all from Scripture and they're thematic. And, and on, on, I think it's March 8th, uh, there's, there's a devotion called God is Able. And I refer to it all the time. He's able to establish you in the gospel, Romans 16. He's able to make all grace abound to you, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. He's able to do far more than we could ask or think, Ephesians 3, 20. Um, he's able to guard what we've committed until that day, 2 Timothy 1, 12. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through Christ, Hebrews 7.25, and my favorite benediction in the Bible, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his throne, be glory and honor and praise forever and ever. He's able. Do you remember that healing in Mark 9 where this father came to Jesus and it's really a disturbing um, situation. This man has a boy who fell on the ground and rolled about and foamed at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has he been doing this? And he said, from childhood. And, and it has often cast him into fire and into water. Can you imagine living with that kind of pressure? You've got a child who is convulsing and throwing himself into the fire. Your life is, is ongoing uh, supervision and Jesus said to him, talking to this father, 
The man said, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And Jesus said to him, if you, can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. There's an honest man. <laughs> I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't that the Christian life? Lord, I believe, and I'm dealing with all of these issues of my heart where it doesn't seem, this reality gap just doesn't seem to be closing at all. Immediately the father cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running, he healed the boy and took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Thirdly, Abraham's example of faith is recorded for our faith as well. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's fine with Abraham. I'm, you know, I'm living in the 21st century. What, what kind of kinship do I have with Abraham? Every, every, every kinship, if you would know God's salvation in Jesus Christ. In verses 23 through 25, it says that the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. This is recorded for our, our faith as well. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. We are counted righteous before God only one way. Salvation has only come this way. It's by faith. By faith in what God has done and what God has promised. We live this side of the cross. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. This saving faith is marked by obedience, surrender, service, repentance, resolve, conviction, clear conscience, longings to please God, desiring to abide in Him, and fruit that flows from such a life. Paul closes this chapter with a reminder of what God has done for us, who delivered up for our, our trespasses. Trespass means to step over the line, to break God's commands who was raised for our justification. Look at verse 25. That last section was raised for our justification. A key to understanding Paul's gospel is he preached a crucified and risen Savior. And by the way, that's going to be our Easter message is resurrection in Romans. It's, it's throughout this letter and I want to just hold this as a part of our larger study of the book of Romans. True saving faith bears spiritual fruit to the glory of God. Let me mention quickly, and we'll close. Faith without works is dead, James said. So which is right? If we're, if we're saved apart from works, which Paul is saying in Romans, and James in chapter 2 is saying faith without works is dead, which is right? They're defending the same truths from two different directions. Paul is addressing the legalist or works-driven unbeliever who would attempt to justify themselves before God by their works. James, on the other hand, is addressing church people who say, oh, you, you, make, you make incredible claims of faith. Your, your doctrine is sound, but there's no works in your life. And so they're addressing uh, the same truth is defended from different perspectives. So, I close with Jesus' parable of the soils. It's recorded in Mar uh, Matthew 13, Mark 4. And he, he, 
he gives this picture of a sower going out to sow. And as the seed fell, some fell along the path and it was beaten down because people walk on it. And the birds come and devour the seed. And he explains that that's a picture of Satan coming. As the word has been sown, Satan comes and he picks up the seed immediately and it doesn't penetrate the heart. This is the description of a hard-hearted person. And then he mentions the rocky soil. Some of that seed lands on rocky soil. And it doesn't have much soil because it's not deep. And it springs up like a, like a weed in the crack of a parking lot. Yet no depth of soil was scorched. It doesn't have any roots and it withered. And Jesus said, this describes um, the one who hears the word of God. He receives it with joy, but he doesn't have any roots. And after a while, when tribulation comes, when, per- when persecution comes, on account of the word, on account of what it means to follow Jesus Christ, they immediately fall away. Then he mentions the seed being sown on good soil, or excuse me, among thorns, rocky ground and then among thorns, and the seed grew up and was choked by the weeds and the thorns, and it yielded no grain, only loss. And Jesus said, this describes those who hear the word of God, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things Choke out the word. Choke it out. And then he describes the good soil. Where the seed is sown. And the word of God is heard. And it bears fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Now, which do you think of those four examples is a picture of true salvation? I think the fourth one. That's bearing fruit. That's walking with the Lord. So I would say this morning, as this seed has been sown out to us, with the gospel preached to you and the call of Christ issued to you, that the need in your life today, the most urgent need in your life today, would be to repent of your sins and to receive what God has done through Jesus Christ. And with this seed sown, the call of Christ issued to you, who are you going to follow? Who are you going to live for? I pray that you would follow Abraham's example and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed in him and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the same would be true of you if you would believe in Christ. One of the things we see in in baptism is is a public profession of faith. I close with John MacArthur. Let me suggest to you that if your faith is a private thing, you ever heard someone say that to you? You know, you, religion comes in, it's a private thing. I'm not really, what that really means is I, I'm, I'm not open to, to talk about it. Let me suggest to you that if your faith is a private thing, it's not the Christian faith. True saving faith must not be hidden away. It ought to be the most public thing about you. May that be true as we leave here this morning, that we would take the name of Jesus with us and we would make him known. Would you bow with me in prayer as we come to the close of this service? It is a call to respond in faith, trust, in Christ alone.
who died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. That if anyone is in Christ, he's a new person. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Truly, truly, Jesus said, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. This is good news. In a world of broken dreams and shattered lives, Christ comes to us in our brokenness and offers forgiveness and redemption through his blood alone. Lord, in these closing moments, I pray that you would guide us to a deeper walk with you. For some, an initial walk with you. I pray for a freedom of the Spirit this morning to be obedient to you in all things. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.